Welcome to tape number 11 of Gleanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies which Pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with chapter 17, the yoke of Christ. By the yoke, two oxen were by the yoke, two oxen were reunited together in the plow. The yoke then is a figure of practical union. This is clear from be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Second Corinthians 6.14 the Lord's people are forbidden to enter into any intimate relations with unbelievers prohibited from marrying former business partnerships or having any religious union with them. This yoke speaks of a union which results in a closed communion. Christ invites those who come to him to rest, for rest to enter into a practical union with him so that they may enjoy fellowship together. So it is with Enoch, who walked with God, Genesis 5.24. But can two walk together except they be agreed, Amos 3.3? They cannot. They must be joined together in aim and unity of purpose to glorify God. Take my yoke upon you. He does not ask us to wear something he has not worn. Oh, the wonder of this! Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 5-8. The one who was equal with God made himself of no reputation. He, the Lord of glory, took upon him the form of a servant. The very Son of God was made of a woman made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. Even Christ pleased not himself, Romans 15.3. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, John 6.38. This was the yoke to which he gladly submitted, complete subjection to the Father's will, loving obe obedience to his commands. And here he says, Take my yoke upon you. Do as I did, making God's will yours. John Newton pointed this out 
in a threefold manner. First, the yoke of his profession, putting on of the Christian uniform and owning the banner of our commander. This is no irksome duty, rather it is a delight. Those who have tasted that the Lord is gracious are far from being ashamed of him and of his gospel. They want to tell all who will hear what God has done for their souls. It was true of Andrew and Philip, John 1, 41 and 43, and with the woman of Samaria, John 4, 28 to 29. As someone has said, many, quote, many young converts in the first warmth of their affection have more need of a bridle than of a spur in this concern, end quote. No Christian should ever be afraid to show his colors. Nevertheless, he should not flaunt them before those who detest them. We will not go far. Wrong, we will not go far wrong if we heed. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. First Peter three fifteen. It is only when, like Peter, we follow Christ afar off that we are in danger of denying our discipleship. Second the yoke of his precepts, that the gracious soul approves and delights, this is quoting uh, John Newton, these the gracious soul approves and delights in, but, the, but still we are renewed but in part, and when the commands of Christ stand in direct opposition to the will of man, or call upon us to sacrifice a right hand or a right eye, Though the Lord will surely make those who depend upon him victorious at the last, yet it will cost them a struggle, so that when they are sensible how much they owe to his power working in them and enabling them to overcome, they will at the same time have a lively conviction of their own weakness. Abraham believed in God and delighted to obey, yet when he was commanded to sacrifice his only son, this was no easy trial of his sincerity and obedience, and all who are partakers of his faith are exposed to meet sooner or later with some call of duty less, little less contrary to the dictates of flesh and blood. End quote. Third, the yoke of his dispensations, his dealing with us in providence. If we enjoy the favor of the Lord, it is certain we will be out of favor with those who hate him. He has plainly warned... If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15:19. It is useless to suppose that by acting prudently and circumspectly we can avoid this. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3:12. It is only by unfaithfulness, by hiding our light under a bushel, by compromising the truth, by attempting to serve two masters, that we can escape the reproach of Christ. He was hated by the world, and he has called us to fellowship with his sufferings. This is part of the yoke he requires his disciples to bear. Moreover, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It is hard to bear the opposition of the world, but it is harder still to endure the rod of the Lord. The flesh is still in us and resists vigorously when our wills are crossed. Nevertheless, we are gradually taught to say with Christ, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18:11. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Once again, we call attention to the deep importance of observing our Lord's order here. Just as there can be no taking of his yoke upon us until we come to him, so there is 
no learning of him in the sense meant until we have taken his yoke upon us, until we have surrendered our wills to his and submitted to his authority. This is far more than an intellectual learning of Christ. It is an experimental, effectual, transforming learning. By painstaking effort, any man may acquire a theological knowledge of the person and doctrine of Christ. He may even obtain a clear concept of his meekness and lowliness, but that is vastly different from learning of him in so as to be changed into the same image from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. To learn of him, we must be completely subject to him and in close communion with him. What is it that we most need to be taught of him? How to do what will make us objects of admiration in the religious world? Or how to obtain such wisdom that we will be able to solve all mysteries? How to accomplish such great things that we will be given the preeminence among our brethren? No, indeed, nothing resembling these, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16:15. What then, Lord, this, learn of me, for I am, a, I am meek and lowly in heart. These are the graces we most need to cultivate, the fruits which the husbandman most highly values. Of the former grace, it is said, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, is of great price, 1 Peter 3, 4. Of the latter, the Lord declared, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, Isaiah 57:15. Do we really believe these scriptures? For I am meek. What is meekness? We may best discover the answer by observing the word and other verses. For example, now the man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, Numbers 12.3. This refers to the gentleness of Moses' spirit under unjust opposition. Instead of returning evil, he prayed for the healing of Miriam. So far from being weakness as the world supposes, meekness is the strength of a man who can rule his own spirit under provocation, subduing his resentment of wrong and refusing to retaliate. The meek and quiet spirit also has to do with the subjection of a wife to her husband, 1 Peter 3, 1-6, her chaste conversation or behavior, which is to be coupled with fear, verse 2, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, verse 6. It is inseparably associated with gentleness, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 1, gentle, showing all meekness unto all men, Titus 3, 2, the spirit of meekness is in sharp contrast from the apostle using the rod, 1 Corinthians 4.21. Thus we may say that meekness in the, is the opposite of self-will. It is pliability, yieldedness, offering no resistance as clay in the potter's hands. When the maker of heaven and earth exclaimed, I am a worm and no man, Psalm 22.6, he referred not only to the unparalleled depths of shame into which he descended for our sakes, but also to his lowliness and submission to the Father's will. A worm has no power of resistance, not even when it is stepped on. So there was nothing in the perfect servant which opposed the will of God. Behold in him the majesty of meekness when he stood like a lamb before her shears, 
committing himself to the righteous judge, contrasts Satan, who is represented as the great red dragon, while the lamb stands as a symbol of the meekest and gentlest. The meekness of Christ appeared in his readiness to become the covenant head of his people and to assume our nature in being subject to his parents during the days of his childhood in submitting to the ordinance of baptism in his entire subjection to the Father's will. He made no retaliation. He counted not his life dear unto him, but freely laid it down for others. We most need to learn of him not how to become great or self-important, but how to deny self, to become tractable and gentle, to be servants, not only his servants, but also the servants of our brethren. For I am meek and lowly in heart. As meekness is the opposite of self-will, so lowliness is the reverse of self-esteem and self-righteousness. Lowliness is self-abasement, yes, self-effacement. It is more than a refusing to stand up for our own rights. Though he was so great a person, this grace was preeminently to stay displayed by Christ. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. I am among you, I am among you as he that serveth, Luke twenty two twenty seven. Behold him as he performed the menial duties of washing the feet of his disciples. He was the only one born into this world who could choose the home and circumstances of his birth. What a rebuke to our foolish pride his choice was. My reader, if we must indeed learn of him, if this choice flower of paradise is to bloom, we must indeed learn of him if this choice flower of paradise is to bloom in the garden of our souls. Chapter 18 The Quintessence of Christ The Lord Jesus uttered a gracious invitation which is accompanied by a precious promise. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew 11:28-29. And then he proceeded to make known the conditions of that promise. To those whose consciences were weighted down by a burden of guilt, and who are anxious for relief, he says, Come unto me, and rest. But his rest can only be obtained as we meet his requirements, that we take his yoke upon us and that we learn of him. Taking Christ's yoke upon us consists of surrendering our wills to him, submitting to his authority, consenting to be ruled by him. See chapter 42, or chapter 17. Now consider what it means to learn of him. Christ is the antitypical prophet to whom all of the Old Testament prophets pointed. He alone was personally qualified to fully make known the will of God. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2. Christ is the grand teacher of his church. All others are subordinate to and appointed by him. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Christ is the chief shepherd and feeder of his flock. His under-shepherds learn of and receive from him. 
Christ is the personal word in whom and through whom the divine perfections are illustriously displayed. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John 1.18 So we must come to Christ to be instructed in heavenly doctrine and built upon built up in uh, in our holy faith learn of me christ is not only the final spokesman of god the only one by whom the divine will is fully uttered but also he is also the grand exemplar set before his people christ did more than proclaim the truth he became the embodiment of it he did more than utter the will of god he was the personal exemplification of it the divine requirements were perfectly set forth in the character and conduct of the Lord Jesus, and therein he differed radically from all who went before him and who all who come after him. The lives of the prophets, Old Testament, and the apostles, New Testament, shed scattered rays of light, but they were merely reflections of the light. Christ is the Son of Righteousness, therefore fully qualified to say, Learn of me. There was no error in his teaching, nor the slightest blemish in his character or flaw in his conduct. The life he lived presents to us a perfect standard of holiness, a perfect pattern for us to follow. When his enemies asked, Who art thou? He answered, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning, John 8.25. The force of that remarkable answer expressed in the Greek is brought out yet more plainly in Baxter's Interlinear and the margin of the American Revised Version. Together that which I also spoke unto thee, in reply to their interrogation, the Son of God affirmed that he was essentially and absolutely what he declared himself to be. I have spoken of light, I am the, that light. I have spoken of truth, I am that truth. The incarnation, personification, and exemplification thereof. None but he could really say, I am myself what I am speaking to you about. The child of God may speak the truth and walk in the truth, but he is not the truth. Christ is. A Christian may let his light shine, but he is not the light. Christ was, and therein we see his exalted uniqueness. We may know him that is true. Not him who taught the truth, but him that is true. Because the Lord Jesus could make this claim, I am altogether that which I spoke unto thee. I am the living embodiment, the personal exemplification of all which I teach that he is a perfect pattern for us to follow, that he can say, learn of me. He has left us an example that we should follow his steps, 1 Peter 2.21. Since we bear his name, Christians, we should imitate his holiness. Be ye followers of me, as I am also, am of, excuse me, be ye followers of me, as I also am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. The best of men are but men at the best. They have their errors and defects which they freely acknowledge. Therefore, where they differ from Christ, it is our duty to differ from them. No man, however wise or holy, is a perfect rule for other men. The standard of perfection is in Christ alone. He is the rule of every Christian's walk. Not as though I have already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.12. Though we fall far short of teaching such a standard in this life, nothing short of it should be our aim.
He that saith he abideth in him ought also so to walk, even as he walked. 1 John 2.6 Many reasons might be given of proof of ought. It is vain for any man to profess he is a Christian unless he evidences that it is both his desire and endeavor to follow the example Christ left his people. As the Puritan said, let him either put on the life of Christ or put off the name of Christ. Let him show the hand of a Christian in works of holiness and obedience, or else the tongue and language of a Christian must gain no belief or credit. God has predestinated his people to be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8.29. The work was begun here and perfected after death. But that work is not consummated in heaven unless it is commenced on earth, quoting John Flavel. We may as well hope to be saved without Christ as to be saved without conformity to Christ, end quote. This practical conformity between God's Son and His sons is indispensable to their relation in grace, this relationship between body and head. Believers are members of a living organism of which Christ is the head. Of members, by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether, be, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12:13 of Christ, and God gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 1, and 23. The two together, members and head, form Christ mystical. Now as Christ, the head, is pure and holy, so also must be the members. An animal without a human head would be a monstrosity. For the sensual and godless to claim oneness to Christ is to misrepresent him before the world as though his mystical body were like the image of Nebuchadnezzar with the head of fine gold and the feet of iron and clay. Daniel 2.32 and following. This ends tape number 11 of part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is available from Stillwaters of Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.